3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation's true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 855am 3CR. Thursday breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, good morning, Carly and Grace. How are you both going? <laughs> Very well. Very good. Oh my God, it's Halloween. Oh yes, it's the 31st of October. That's exciting. Happy Halloween. Going to get dressed up and go trick-or-treating? Mm. No. Not this year, probably. The only year I've ever done that was when I lived in Canada. It's mm. just not the same here. Yeah. It's true. But last night as I was cycling home along the bike path, there was this house that had put this skeleton in a wig up on their chimney and I was like... I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, what do we have on, on this spooky show today? Well, first up. Oh, first up, yes. <laughs> um, so first up, we're actually going to be playing for you um, an interview that I did with uh, Jody Rosenberg, yeah. a really amazing writer, a couple of months ago, actually now, at the Sydney Writers' Festival. But we wanted to replay it for you because it's, I don't know, I feel like it it really talks to both in a trans ability in literature, but also to prison abolition and politics of solidarity and decarceration. So we'll be playing that this morning in two parts. And then after that, we're going to be chatting with um, two folks from TILDA, the Trans and Diverse Film Festival, Gender Diverse Film Festival, because they've got their launch tonight at Hairs and Hyenas. So we're going to be chatting with Scout, um, the creative director, and also Tommy, one of the filmmakers, at about 7.35 this morning um, to let us know about the festival that will be in a couple of weeks' time. And we'll probably have another chat with someone closer to time, but we just wanted to give you the heads up this morning. Mm, great. And then we're going to be speaking with Lisa Fuller, who's the author of Ghost Bird, um, and so she's a new up-and-coming Indigenous writer. So it'd be great to have a chat to her. And then at 8 o'clock, um, we're going to be hopefully crossing over to the IMARC protests. Um, so I don't know if any of the listeners have seen some of the videos that have been um, being yeah, shown on social media, but really intense scenes there. Yep, super intense. And then at 8.15, we're going to be talking to Monique Hurley, who's a lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, talking about the bill that's been tabled in federal parliament to, eight, to raise the age of criminal responsibility, which is currently sitting at 10, which is completely and utterly ridiculous. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC, a 3CR supporter.
Matthew Fagan Band and Friends presents Earth Show, a rock and classical journey across our living planet. It's a music and visual spectacular celebrating the one planet that we inhabit. Saturday the 9th of November at the Deacon Edge Federation Square. Concert starts at 8pm and an environment symposium, Our Shared Home, is on from 5pm. There's a 40% discount for 3CR subscribers, making your all-inclusive tickets just $33 for adults, $30 concession and $24 for students. Plus booking fee and don't forget to book in with the 3CR subscriber code 3CR20. Go to www.matthew-fagan.com. A 3CR supporter. Now we're going to be listening to a track by Oetha. Um, this track's called Cruising. So 
You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855 AM. It's ten past seven on the thirty first of October, Halloween, and just then we listened to Cruisin' by Oetha, their amazing new track. And up now we're gonna listen to an interview that I did with Jody Rosenberg, who's author of Confessions of the Fox. I did this interview a couple of months ago at the Sydney Writers Festival in April this year, along with writer Vincent Silk, who you'll hear in the interview as well. To start with, Jodie, would you just be able to introduce yourself and your work for us? Okay, well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Jodie Rosenberg. I wrote a novel called Confessions of the Fox um, that is based on the life of a real-life prison break artist from the 18th century named Jack Shepard. Um, in the book, in part based on some archival research that I was doing and in part based on... Um, the license I took with speculative fiction. Um, Jack is um, what we might now understand as a trans man. Um, and I also teach 18th century studies and um, critical theory at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst in the US. We wanted to start um, with a different question to the question of like queer identity. Um, Thank God. There are always these demands on, you know, like queer people or people of colour um, and sex workers and specifically like in the last five years especially to like confine ourselves to these very um, like self-contained confessional narratives that are um, really, can be really objectifying and re- really reductive to like single issue kind of um, memoirising or something like this. How do you challenge the pressure to write single issues and be read as a single issue or the pressure to reduce your narrative to one issue? I mean, I I think I've been fortunate in that um, I have to credit uh, my imprint at Random House. The editors, it's an all POC editorial collective and my uh, editor, I had an editorial team but the main editor was also... um, Gender queer, gender non-conforming, and um, they really 
um, were totally psyched about a book that was trying to think about sort of um, the long history of the intersection of um, trans, queer, gender nonconforming bodies, um, people of color, the intersection of these subjects with the birth of the modern prison system, the birth of um, the carceral state and policing. And they, they, this was what kind of appealed to them about it. Um, so I think in a way I've been shielded a little bit um, from some of those demands. Um, but I also do think that the what's being allowed into the mainstream is shifting a little bit in the U.S. at least in part due to sort of just large-scale collective efforts on the part of queer and trans people to just insistently, we have for so long been um, arguing for the um, kind of assemblage-like nature of these different historical forces. Um, so like if you think about, you know, Dean Spade's work around like, uh, you know, um, imperialism, state militarism, what's called homo-nationalism by Jasper Poir, homo-normativity by Lisa Dugan, folding of queer people into the imperial state project. At first on the margins and then more and more sort of within um, a, a broader kind of more mainstream culture to bring this sort of intersecting nature of historical reality to, to light and just insist on it. So it's, um, I guess I would say there was the fortune of, of working with the particular editors I did at Random House, but really there's the kind of historical context of everyone who's not me, who's been struggling for so long, you know, to insist on these, the totality of these relations. And on that note, I wanted to ask how you... This makes sure that your work is grounded in real-world struggle. And I guess from what I've gathered, and please correct me if I'm wrong, as someone without the experience of incarceration, mm-hmm. how do you also navigate, you know, writing works that are dealing, you know, very heavily with narratives of incarceration and decarceral yeah. politics? Um, it's true that I've never been incarcerated. The novel is a historical fiction about 18th century incarceration. So there would necessarily have to be an enormous amount of speculation in any case. I'm just very inspired by prison abolition work and I was sort of motivated by a certain question which had to do with that sort of very passionate intersection for a lot of queer and trans people around prison abolition work and sort of wanted to anachronistically cast it back onto an 18th century setting I was doing uh, archival research on some debates that were going on in the early part of the 18th century around some changes in the death penalty as, as it was understood in early London. It was academic research and it was very depressing because it had that, it took that very typical bourgeois shape of like an interclass so-called debate between two bourgeois parties, essentially, and where both positions are horrifying and brutal. So I think I was just too depressed to really pursue this fake debate academically, you know, and I felt like a better way to approach it would be with some kind of utopian horizon of 
an ex-carcerator like Shepard and a kind of abolitionist perspective. So for me, that, that meant writing a speculative fiction. But all of that said, I don't make any claims to be able to sort of accurately represent the experience of being incarcerated. I just wanted to do justice to the historical record of this kind of moment of brutality and how people were resisting it and also to kind of like a political context in the present that I find very inspiring. The types of histories that you're exploring don't get taught here Mm -hmm. at all. You know, even like narratives around colonial transportation or slavery Mm -hmm. or this mythology of like England as like a really white society Mm -hmm. up until really recently. You know, that's totally what you get fed at school here. Mm -hmm. Like there's no complexifying of those historical narratives that are taken as truth especially around transportation, part of why I'm really interested in it, like why I like this work and why I'm interested in speculative fiction that speaks about that particular period is because of like the history of sex work um, mm-hmm. in all of the different ways that it shows up. In Australia, like in the second fleet, like the first ship, why a second fleet of transported convicts came here was because they needed to transport women to like mm-hmm. stop the men fighting each other and give them something to do, which mm-hmm. was like have sex with women. Mm-hmm. Um, women were way more um, arrested to be transported here. Thinking about like global history of incarceration and all of the different forms it takes is like a really when you only view it from this lens of gender, like you lose all of that. You lose this like global history or something like this. You're saying when you try to sort of isolate trans history and yeah. vacuum. Yeah, I mean that's the total fallacy of these let's include more trans people in the military kind of perspective. Which only understands, you know, trans history and trans rights as a, like a single issue matter. I find in the Confessions of the Fox there also tends to be like a real commitment to like collective knowledge and to collective writing Um, and also to you know we were talking before as well about even just like having multiple trans characters in a text as well is like expanding beyond this idea of singularity which I, I as a reader find really powerful. I was really obsessed with writing it as like a speculative alternative history of testosterone extraction because we know that there's a lot of really brutal aspects to the history of of testosterone synthesization. An Australian theorist here, or historian, Ethan Blue, his work had really influenced me. He's such a great historian and, and this shows up at one point in the novel. He had done this work on the San Quentin so-called prison doctor in the 1920s who was doing these testosterone experiments on the bodies of executed prisoners and like grafting them, grafting testosterone that had been extracted um, onto people who were serving life sentences, I think. And I wanted to come up with like, what just simply like, what if testosterone synthesis had happened through this process of like, you know, just collective sort of amateur science, uh, revolutionary amateur science. And that was like just kind of another driving fantasy. But in a way, it's a transposition of another thing that we know that's true, that even though testosterone has been synthesized by corporations and 
the horrible medical experiments, the process of arguing for our access to testosterone has been a collective one, often one conducted by sex workers, by trans sex workers, and has been a labor issue in that way. Um, and so it, it, part of that fiction about, you know, what if we had made this is really a historical truth because we have in the sense of sort of arguing for, for access. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 20 past seven and you're listening to an interview that I did with Jodie Rosenberg, author of Confessions of the Fox. Stay tuned for the second part of the convo. You were speaking about fiction before and similarly I, I'm like deeply committed to with like deep revolutionary love to like all genre yeah. as like a vehicle for like feeling and co- collectivity and we were speaking before about in fiction your because there are different things that you can do and there's also an expect the expectation of what you can do is different and you are given a bit more license to like um, speak about other positions other than your own mm-hmm. and I wondered if you have ever struggled with like how to do that responsibly well certainly I do struggle with how to do that responsibly so M was speaking earlier about how I was committed to you know not representing early modern London as if it was a fully white place we know that it wasn't we know um, that for example you know many South Asian and Southeast Asian sailors for example were you know, press ganged into uh, labor on East India Company ships, then abandoned at the docks, and then very violently policed once there without any means. And so it felt completely irresponsible to me to write historical fiction perpetrating the lie of early modern London as fully white. But of course, there are questions around uh, representation of characters of color. I tried to approach this from many angles. One had to do with the editorial process. Again, it was an all-POC editorial imprint at Random House, so I had a lot of intense sensitivity reading from them and from friends. Another thing that I did try to do was sort of build in this question of representation and, and maybe... Um, the impossibility of me as a white author representing characters of color in a satisfactory way into the narrative itself. Whether that's successful or not is really not for me to say. Um, It was important to me to try to put that in there, but I don't know that that's successful, and that's sort of a plot element that I can't really describe quickly on the radio. So those were two things. And as to the latter thing, I think I was guided by many people who've written about this and the many debates in the writing world about it, but also a phrase that um, the scholar uh, David Marriott had written that kind of stuck with me where he was talking, you know, a very kind of obvious and simple concept um, that it's not just about the representation of race, but just the raciality of representation itself. So, I mean, one has to at least try to grapple with the question that uh, the fact that structurally, whether you're representing characters of color or not, all of representation is racialized when we live in a racial capitalist society. And these questions need to be engaged with, I, I think, at some level uh, by all writers, no matter what you're writing. So, and, it, and you might not do it successfully, and that is just something that you just have to grapple with. 
Totally, right? But like a politics of refusal can only get you so far. Like you can't just as a white writer be like, well, I'm not going to write characters of colour and therefore think that you get around these questions of like positionality or responsibility or, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. You can write no characters of colour and the structure of your text is racialized. This is the thing where, you know, that fallacy of whiteness that believes it's not racialized uh, all bound up together, as I think all everyone listening to this knows. And I wanted to ask a question as well around, particularly in relation to policing, surveillance and dispossession, why it's so important for you to be looking at what was going on in the 18th century in London and also in a speculative way and, you know, reading into the archives in the way that you do in order to understand contemporary forms mm. of policing and surveillance and dispossession. So the one thing that we, we know, one of the things that we know is that what we have a lot of archival uh, material on are, are forced confessions. Forced confessions of prisoners, of death row prisoners, confessions that were, that were forced for profit and probably had a sadistic element just as well. Like Foucault said, you know, the confession functions as a technology of truth production. It's not itself true. And this same is true of the archive. It's a technology of truth production, but it doesn't mean that that's true. So it's important when telling a history of the birth of modern policing to, I think, to insert a speculative element. There's, there's no way around it because so much of the archive is has been brutally produced and fabricated. Uh, So that seemed to me the only responsible way to address it while still trying to do the best that we can with, you know, what archives we do have and also the literature that we have where we can do symptomatic readings of what isn't said explicitly but what is sedimented there from, from history. But I was really fascinated just by this period where we're talking about a moment where a municipal police force doesn't exist. And it was really important to me to write about a moment and kind of denaturalize even the idea of the necessity of the police to begin with. Because it's a historical fact that municipal policing did not exist in London before the end of the 18th century. And, and, and so many people think if you have, you know, if you have a society, you have to have the police, and that's actually just not historically true. So I was interested to look at this moment where it's coming into being, and to look at the kinds of resistance to that. And I love what you're saying about, yeah, using this moment to allow the police to even be a question to denaturalise yeah. the police because and like I say we both do you know anti-violence work yeah. and like so often the conversations we have like the role of the police is just taken for granted right. you know like it's just it's not even able to be questioned because like, as you right. say we've always had police surely surely yeah. police have always been yeah. you know first responders to violence whatever and to even just open that up as a question and to allow space yeah. for like speculation or imagining what other ways could we as a community do this what other ways could we respond to violence what other ways could right. we support survivors beyond police I feel like for me, there's something really incredible about the way your work does that, like opening up that space. Thank you. That means a lot because it was something I was trying to do. And in Australia, I think there is even more adherence to the idea that it is natural that we have police across the board. It's more naturalised mm. that we like call the police when something bad happens. Mm. And that, that's why 
I guess the anti-violence work that we do mm-hmm. is so interesting because mm-hmm. you hear people's justification for that mm-hmm. all the time across a, like a range right. of different backgrounds and experiences people bringing that to it. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, you know, a key touchstone that I'm sure you guys work with is Angela Davis's uh, Prisons Obsolete. I teach that book and it's, it does so much foundational work and even in just that asking the question, you know, the implied answer is yes. <laughs> um, she does such a great job of demonstrating that that's the case. I have still so many more questions, but I'm also aware that we probably should wrap up. <laughs> like yeah. I just have so much I want to ask. Like, you know, I want to talk more about, um, and we totally don't have to talk about this now, but you know, particularly around also, you know, in the way you were talking about before, Vinny, of like disrupting this idea of single issue politics or single issue narratives, of talking about gender and hormones and colonisation, mm-hmm. um, and the way those axes have always intersected, mm-hmm. um, and that again is something that. I feel like you're definitely exploring mm-hmm. in the text in ways that I feel like often I don't see, mm-hmm. you know, and also historicizing those lineages of mm-hmm. testosterone production or all the ways certain communities have been targeted for experimentation around hormones. And this is where, you know, some of that, what you might call like dystopian queer theory was foundational to the project. So like, obviously the, the, the really key text of queer theory of the past 12 or 15 years um, is just Poir's terrorist assemblages where, you know, she does the work of just, um, you know, exposing, uh, you know, the veiled reality of the ways in which queer queer subjects are, are being sort of like gobbled up and folded into the imperial state as as complicitous subject or queerness itself is kind of being normativized so that war can be waged in its name and this kind of thing again sort of forms the matrix of an anachronistic um, kind of backwards looking that I was trying to do um, where we're looking at queer and trans um, sort of proto-subjectivity that, that might lie outside of steamrolling force of, of that move on the part of, of sort of contemporary imperialism. So looking at sort of like what's, what's left out of, of the homo-nationalist drive of, of the contemporary state um, and just kind of celebrating how we resist it. Mm-hmm. To, not to sound too cheesy, but yeah. Just to finish up, Jody. Can we just ask that, yeah, what, I guess what's on the horizon for you or what are you sort of looking towards at the moment, either in your work or other folks' work or anything? Well, I mean, one of the things that finishing the book has been, one of the things that's been nice about finishing the book and, you know, they really pressure you to, like, sell your next book before the, you know, before the first one was barely even out. I'm sure you've experienced this. Um, I haven't done that yet. Actually, I've been working on a new thing, but it also freed me up to get a little bit back into some organizing work that I've been doing and that I had kind of contracted some of that work while I was editing because that editing process is so all-consuming in a really gross way, Hmm. in a really depressing way, to be honest. I mean, it was wonderful to work so closely with my editor, but, you know, it was... It's gross that, you know, I felt like every second that I wasn't doing that, I should be doing that, and I felt really cut off from a lot of organizing work. So so that's one thing that's been really nice to get back into. And 
a lot of that work has been around Palestine solidarity. It has been for a long time. But I do also have a new project. But I'm not very good at, at talking about that kind of, um, ugh, what can I say, meta-memoir humor writing. Um, I really uh, miss writing humor because early 18th century books are not very funny and trying to kind of mimic one was it was an experiment in voice, I guess I would say, but I, I like humor and I also think of humor as kind of a political rhetoric, a political tool, a political seduction maybe, but um, I also just really enjoy writing it. So I'm kind of working on something humorous and like a meta-memoirish, I guess we could say. Yeah, right. And how can we find out more about your work or keep up with uh, what you get up to? I'm not very good at updating my website, but I, it is jordy-rosenberg.com. I guess you could go there or just, I don't know, internet stalk me or Google <laughs> some stuff. I don't know. But I'm not like a hyper-productive type of writer. I'm like a, a dweller and festerer. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 7.35 and we've been listening to an interview that I did a few months back with Jordi Rosenberg, author of Confessions of the Fox, about transvisibility in literature, historical and speculative fiction and collective politics of decarceration, abolition and collective access to testosterone. Up next, sort of keeping... Keeping going this morning in the same theme, we are so lucky to be joined on the line by Scout and Tommy, who are going to talk with us about the Tilda Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, um, which is launching tonight at Hares and Hyenas. Good morning, Scout and Tommy. Good morning. Hello. <laughs> hey. Um, so, so, Scout, you're the creative director of Tilda. Would you be able to yes. give us a little bit of an overview about the festival and what it is? So the festival, uh, well, Tilda is the um, Melbourne's Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, um, showcasing the showcasing films uh, that look at uh, TGD narratives. And how has it been going for what five years now? Is that right? Yes, we say yeah. Yeah, amazing. How did how did Tilda come about, and why is it so important to have a festival like this in? Um yeah, I guess it's um, yeah, it's community community built and uh, run by volunteers, and it's just yeah, so important to be able to give the community a voice as well, um, because it's not just a film festival; it's you know a gathering for the community as well and a celebration. And. Tommy, you're um, the writer and director of Kids on Fire, which is a fictional short film included in the festival this year. Uh, would you be able to give listeners a bit of a heads up about, about your film, about your work? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so uh, I made the film uh, as part of um, uh, my honours here at BCA. Uh, so it's a seven-minute, 21 film. Uh, it's about a nine-year-old closeted evangelical Christian tomboy um, who has to prove her faith uh, by vandalising an LGBTQ sex shop. Um, so it's kind of based on uh, 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 a youth group that I was part of when I was growing up that was, um, I guess, quite homophobic and transphobic and um, was quite extreme and zealous. So uh, I kind of wanted to make this film about that time in my life and um, it kind of goes back into just a general interest in films about like queer identity and belief and religion and that kind of thing. Mm. 
And so, you know, Scout mentioned before that it, that Tilda is not only a film festival, it's also sort of, you know, really community coming together. What for you, Tommy, has been the significance of being part of the, the Tilda community? Yeah, like it's been a lot. Like I, Tilda's great. Yeah, it's kind of like it feels, because it's over one weekend and it's just all the Footscray Community Arts Centre. It just feels like sort of like a camp, but like a good camp, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's really good. It's, um, uh, it's been quite valuable for me over the last couple of years in attending uh, uh, at the festival to meet other uh, trans filmmakers, um, especially the guest filmmakers that come in as well as local people. Um, and I, I think it's just really nice to be able to go to multiple sessions of trans films, like not just one mm-hmm. curated short program, but like the whole festival. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, and in, in the interview that um, we played earlier this morning on the show with Jodie Rosenberg, author of Confessions of the Fox, we were talking about the importance of you know having diverse trans visibility, so not just having the single trans character in a book, not just having the single trans film in a festival, but actually having you know multiple trans voices within any sort of you know yeah piece of work or or festival or event, and how sort of significant and unfortunately rare that is. Um, and Scout, on that note, I wanted to ask you, you know, why? Why is it important to have this, like, separate trans and gender diverse festival when, you know, some listeners might be like, well, why can't these films just be shown in MQFF, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, for example? Like, why why is it important for us to have our own space? Um, yeah, it's about... I guess it creates, um, like, a sense of um, safety and belonging as well, where um, we're not... Yeah, we're not the minority <laughs> when we get together at Footscray Community Arts Centre for Tilda. Um, yeah, we're not the minority there. And, yeah, it is about yeah, creating um, a safe place and just be be who we are and, yeah. Mm. And I think... Uh, oh, sorry, yeah. Or maybe also on that note, I also just love Geordie Rosenberg. I cannot believe that the interview. I'm absolutely going to listen to that later. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think um, the good thing about um, having like multiple trans voices or gender diverse voices in storytelling is especially that um, a lot of the um, media has been around um, mostly white, upper middle class trans um, experiences, um, and I think it's really important that you know, the festival is really big on this. It's highlighting um, the voices of um, trans women of colour. Um, non-binary femme people, um, people from First Nations, like um, trans people, just stories that, that sit outside of that. I think that's partly why it's quite important to have multiple stories told from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and Scout, I was wondering, on that note, would you be able to give us a bit of a, a bit of an overview of some of the films that are included in this year's festival? If I can until the launch tonight. Oh, true. Um, is it all? It's all under wraps. It is under oh. wraps. So our, our, yeah, our program be launched tonight, as well as the festival trailer, an extended version of the trailer, as well. It has an hiatus. Um, yeah, it's so not much more, but I know it will be. Or the trailer will also be live, and the program on our socials after tonight as well. Um, and tickets also go live from 8 p.m. I've been told. Mm, well, get in there quick, because tonight's event is sold out, isn't it? 
It is, it is. Um, yeah, sold out in the terms that, it, yeah, the venue is probably going to be at capacity. Um, but, you know, given, given that, given being said that, um, yeah, I don't think anyone's going to be really turned away either who wants to. Great. So listeners, is that, so listeners can still come along to Hairs and Hyenas tonight if they, yes. if they want to? Yeah, definitely. I, I believe, yeah, our awesome volunteer, volunteers have got a system in place for making sure that people, you know, get in. Um, yeah, and don't miss out tonight. Amazing. So, so 7 p.m. Hairs and Hyenas tonight. Um, and we can't, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll have an, in, let's have another chat in a few weeks time when the program's actually sure. out and then we can let yeah. listeners know all the amazing films that are out there. And I think, yeah, just well, having, know, also, yep. Yeah, we know that, well, we know that Tommy Hart's film, Kids on Fire, is it a story? <laughs> um, True. <laughs> yeah, we know that. And particularly, yeah, we'd love to chat with you further down the track about, you know, how to ensure that Tilda, while, you know, it's so important in creating a space for trans and gender diverse voices and community, but it's also not, as you were saying, Tommy, a single issue space, you know, that it is, um, it isn't just implicitly centering white middle class trans and gender diverse people, but actually is a space for, you know, very diverse trans and gender diverse voices. So, on that note, is there anything that either of you would like to, yeah, to finish up on before we wrap up the interview? Um, I would like to say that, yeah, the festival, I can tell you, tell you that the festival dates will be from Thursday, November 28th to Sunday, December 1st at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Um, and how about from you, Tommy? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really excited to be part of the program this year. Uh, I was about to say something, but I feel like that's announcing something that's in the program, so I just, I won't say that. Um, but you should definitely come down, uh, book a couple of sessions in a row. There's usually like people hanging around in between sessions that you can hang out with and chat to, and it's like a really, uh, great event. So yeah, you should definitely try and get there. And I love your description of it as like the best camp ever, because it does sort of have that yeah. vibe. <laughs> It does, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. All right, well, listeners, do get down to Hez and Hyenas tonight, 7pm, um, for the launch if you can, and otherwise jump online after 8 o'clock tonight to find out about the program and get your tickets for Tilda, which will be at the end of the month. Thank you so much, Scout and Tommy, for joining us this morning. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Rosie. Thanks, Max. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It is quarter to eight and we've just been talking with Scout, the creative director of Tilda Trans and Diverse Film Festival and also Tommy Hart, one of the um, amazing filmmakers in the program that will be announced tonight at the launch. Stay tuned. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellows learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. 
you look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country, well there's only 25 left so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am. Um, and now on the line, we're joined by Lisa Fuller, who is the author of Ghost Bird. Lisa Fuller is a willy willy woman from Eadsfield, Queensland, and is also descended from the Garangarang and Waka Waka peoples. Uh, she won a 2019 Black and Right Writing Fellowship, and she's also the 2017 David Unipen Award winner. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks, certainly. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. So you've just recently released a book, Ghost Bird. Can you tell listeners a little bit about this book? So it's a YA novel. Um, it's set back home and it's about two twin sisters. One night one of the girls goes missing and the other um, twin starts to have really terrifying nightmares. And she essentially has to figure out where her twin is because... Uh, they're not getting much help from other people. Mm. And it's a um, very yeah, eerie book, <laughs> um, which is very fitting, actually, because it's the 31st of October, Halloween. It works well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what was the process of writing this book? I know you went back on country and talked to your aunties and uncles. Yeah, it was really long because um, this was actually part of my master's. Um, I went home for like six weeks thanks to... Um, I got an NH Worth fellowship and I got to sit down with Barney's and have a yarn and it just, like I was really struggling to write here in Canberra where I've lived since like 2006, but I couldn't get our accents and our Aboriginal English right and I couldn't get us right until I went home and um, yeah, from there it just, it flowed out and then, yeah. (laughs) Mm. 317 won the David Jonathan and then bugger me, now I'm getting published. And, <laughs> <laughs> and why did you decide to write a young um, fiction book? I didn't actually. <laughs> I actually thought it was adult because the content of it's pretty mature. Mm. Um, there's a lot of swearing, there's a lot of, you know, violence and stuff in it. But um, everybody else who read it said, this is YA. Mm. And I was lucky because my publisher, UQP, were really great and they gave me the choice of who I wanted. Like, do I want to go YA or do I want to go adult? And I, um, I, I'm lucky enough to have contacts with a lot of um, really deadly writers and I, I called them up and had a yarn and um, chose YA because I think when I was writing it, I was just thinking about, you know, me at that age and my cousins back home and wanting to write something that, they could connect to and be proud of. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And do you see um, a lot of yourself in the main character, Stacey? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and then my mother and my sister read it, and now everybody's laughing at me saying it's the three of us. <laughs> uh, personally, I think the twins are actually a meld of me and both of my sisters but not according to my family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about some of the other characters in the book as well, the uncles, the mum? It's like, so originally when I was supposed to do my master's, it was um, supposed to be 
with my grandfather, um, but a few weeks before I went home, we lost him. So at the time I was writing this, I think my way of dealing with my grief was I wrote the grandfather in the story is my grandfather. And I did that, like I got permission from mum and most of his children um, before I published it to do that because I just I couldn't write the grandfather any other way. Mm. Um, I think it was a really important part of my grieving process. Mm. I think that, yeah, really came through in the book as well. Um, I really, yeah, loved the um, uncle characters and um, also the mum as well. I think the mother was my favourite. <laughs> I think she reminds me a lot of my mum. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, well, uh, looking back now, I can actually see that is my mum. So, <laughs> works well. Um, and what is the importance for you um, of writing um, these stories and telling um, these stories that are not necessarily um, seen in mainstream writing? Growing up, um, you know, because I told, like, 500 people, right? So there was literally one bookshelf in the council offices that was the town library, and most of that was full of, like, rural fiction where there wasn't a single black face. And if there was, then they were giggling fools that just made me so angry. And then um, the town library, uh, the school library, was much bigger. <laughs> Not that that would be hard, but, um, yeah, there was only, like, two shelves for teenagers. And um, <clears throat> there was no fiction that I could connect to that was kids dealing with stuff that I was dealing with, um, which is why I ended up going to speculative fiction because, um, you know, they deal with things like othering and race and the things that I could identify with as a kid. And I just wanted to write something that, you know, my cousins and my nieces and my nephews and now is, you know, like the eldest is now 13. I wanted to give them something that they could read and see themselves in and be really proud of. Hopefully, hopefully they have done that. Mm, absolutely. Um, and what's on the horizon for you, Lisa? Oh, crap, too much. I'm, um, <laughs> I'm doing my PhD in creative writing, <clears throat> trying to write a novel on that. I'm, so it's a Black and White Fellowship. I'm working hard on a, a middle grade kids book that is actually, I wrote for my nieces, so it's my two eldest nieces going off on an adventure. Um, and I've also got a kids' book actually contracted with Mugabala, which I'm really excited about. Oh, really exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how can listeners um, get a copy of this book? All good bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty much any bookstore you can order it through. There's heaps of online places you can go. Yeah, it's all out there. Incredible. Um, <laughs> um, and I just am interested um, in the process of you going back into country and then also really researching um, to write this book and also being you know, a master's and now a PhD student. Um, how has that journey been? Um, creating a book through that really intense um, research process. Well, the masters I actually did because I was um, I'm, I was actually in publishing at the time, and I loved it so much it had taken over my life, and I wasn't doing any of my own writing. So I did the masters part time because I was deliberately forcing a space for my own writing. Um, but the PhD 
required full commitment, so I quit my job, which was really hard for me because I loved it. But, um, yeah, it's been interesting. More Like, the, the Masters was far less uh, academic in nature because it was just... Uh, it was a Masters by coursework, so I could actually just do a semester-long project where I didn't have to think about the academic side of things. But the PhD, I'm basically just wanting to pick fights with anything and everything that I read. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us here on 3CR this morning. No worries. Thanks for having me. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. For the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about the IMARC blockade. And first up, we wanted to let you hear um, some words from West Papuan student activist Porobibi speaking with Michaela about why the West Papuans are taking part in the IMARC blockade. Uh, Hello, I'm Porobibi, I'm West Papuan student activist. And so tell us a little bit about the West Papua campaign now and and the key things that you're working on. Oh, yeah. with this blockade, IMARC and the uh, presence of West Papuan community here, because um, as we know, uh, BP Exploration is one of the the mining and energy company member of this IMARC at the moment. And yeah, there is a BP Asia Pacific in Bintuni Bay, West Papua, 
and they're just having they're having this um, LNG Tangu expansion project in Bintuni, West Papua, and yeah, the company been established for more than 20 years, but as we know in West Papua, this, the oil price and gas price is so expensive. And there's no such a distributions of gas to every household in West Papua, and they have this um, ICBS program, integrated community-based security program, where they employ um, West Papuan people, West Papuan indigenous, to you know protect the company and protect them from other West Papuan who you know um, fighting against the company. So pretty much. They use West Papuan to spying on West Papuan and report the news to um, Indonesian military, you know, the TNI and Plori. And as we know, um, the last two months has been a really hard time for West Papuan people since, you know, so far it, more than 180 people, eight, more than 180 West Papuans passed away because of the, you know, they send this military thousands of them, more than six thousands of them to West Papua and blockade, uh, um, shut down internet, block internet com communications and uh, there's still, you know, these thousands of troops still in West Papua and we know that, you know, BP and Freeport McMoran, all of these mining and energy company are the major donor to militarizations in West Papua and not only in West Papua but in other um, uh, island regions of Indonesia, like in Kalimantan, with the um, palm oil plantations, industries, and um, coal mining, and there's so many of them. So this this companies are corporate and climate criminals, pretty much. So they're directly funding the military yep. to yep. Yeah, maintain their yes. operations there. Yeah. Truly, truly. And I imagine, yeah, I mean, those kind of divide and rule tactics of employing some people in the community against others can just cause, um, yeah, like uh, such long-term splits. In yeah, the yeah. And this scenario is not happening only in West Papua, and it happens pretty much everywhere, you know, mm. South America or in Africa or Middle East. Mm. And the thing is, uh, West Papuan community aware of it, you know, with so much military presence everywhere. But we we've been terrorized. So like, even our parents, our my generations, and the next generations have this, you know kind of bleak cloud on their minds that oh yeah we're afraid to like being a voice or you know expose our culture because you know military see that as a pro Papua mm -hmm. so what we will be facing is violence so that's why we're scared. Mm. <laughs> And what are some of the impacts that these mining operations are having on on the local communities? Yeah, um, based on experience, I was in um, Salawati Island and and BP also with uh, and Petrogas, PetroChina. What I've seen is like so many corruptions and so many corruptions, and not only that, um, there is environmental destruction too, like. Uh, the water treatment to go to the open ocean, the the temperature is, you know, they put a wrong report on it and it's actually bleached out all the coral reef around there. The sand is so sticky and leaking everywhere. Uh, but because of the bright, the Indonesian Environmental Department, the Ministry and 
you know, like the community there don't don't know much on how to fight against this, and because of the personal military as well, and also in Freeport, um, you know, they they pay so much money to TNI and Polri that sometimes they create this propaganda that oh the indigenous people is come you know come with this um, liberation movement yeah yep come with this liberation movement so um what they do is oh yeah they create they create this story of oh we swapping indigenous have guns and you know killing all the mining workers and then that's why the company need to give more money to the military so you know they can protect more and you know, kill more West Papuan people. So so much, so much troubles that are happening to West Papuan community by this big, you know, mining energy companies in West Papua. And to be fair, it's not only happening in West Papua, but it happens in Kalimantan, Borneo. It happens in um, Sumatra and other Indonesian islands region too. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's just past 8 o'clock and we were hearing from Porobibi, West Papuan student activist, who was speaking with Michaela about why the West Papuans are taking part in the IMARC blockade. And now we're actually going to be crossing live to the IMARC blockade to hear what is happening today on day three. Good morning. Good morning. Who, who do we have on the line this morning? Uh, Marisol. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, first of all, I was wondering, so, you know, we're day three of the IMAC blockade. Would you be able to give listeners a bit of a picture of what it's like down there at the moment? Okay. Um, well, the protest is started already, or the action, um, denouncing what's happening here, and, and just uh, making sure, you know, the police and everyone who's coming to this conference, you know, understand that we know what they are doing and that we are going to continue denouncing what's happening here. So at the moment, I'm not sure you can hear that some, some of the protesters, they are chanting. So, um, and it's, it's important, you know, for everyone who is listening to the radio to come in during this last day of blockade. Mm. And, you know, the, the blockade has been getting... A lot of coverage in the mainstream media that has been focusing pretty much exclusively on the, you know, in, intensely horrible levels of police violence against protesters, um, and we can talk about that. But I also just want to talk about what are the, what are the, like, what brings you to this blockade? Like for you personally and for everyone else there, why is it so important in the face of this violence to keep persisting in in this protest? Well, um, I think for everyone is uh, to denounce what this mining companies are doing. You know, they are destroying the environment. They are polluting our rivers. They have the power to change the course of our rivers. In my case, uh, as a Latin American, as an indigenous woman from Latin America, Mapuche, um, of course, I need to be here to denounce, you know, what's happening to my people. In my land, we have forestry and hydroelectric companies who are displacing the indigenous communities who are taking our land. And the same happens in the Mapuche land, in the Argentinian part, we have mining companies uh, displacing my people. Um, this is a serious issue because no government is paying attention of what's happening with indigenous people. It's so easy for the governments to say, okay, there is uranium, there is silver or gold in this part of the land. Let's, yeah, let's bring some new investment. Let's open a mine without taking in consideration 
the indigenous people and peasants who live in, in this land. So it's, um, it's very important to be here. I think it's, uh, it's, we need to stop being scared and not to protest because we are worried that the police will come and arrest you or go to your house and do a police you know, search in your property. We, we cannot let them to scare us. We need to continue uh, denouncing, protesting, uh, and yeah, putting out there what these multinational corporations like the ones we are, we have today here, BHP, Rio Tinto, Oceana Go, and many others, you know, what they are doing. And what has your experience over the past two days of the blockade been like in terms of solidarity between people who are protesting? Oh, look, I think um, I haven't been here every day. Unfortunately, um, I work full time, but uh, I took my idea to be here. Uh, on Tuesday and also today. And believe me, I, I'm, I'm not impressed with the police uh, reaction. I think uh, they have been extremely violent for no reason. It's, there has been some uh, small actions, you know, uh, organized to stop the, this meeting, but none of them has been violent. No, no one has been violent towards the police or towards no one. So I don't understand why the police is using all these violence to repress the people. Um, I think it's important that we have so many people every day here highlighting different issues uh, and, you know, not letting these people to have a, uh, a relaxing meeting because as one of the chanting say, you know, we are here being repressed by the police, but the criminals are sitting very comfortable inside and safe. Mm. Absolutely. And how about this morning? Are there many people there this morning already? Uh, at this stage, I would say that we're here um, around 200. And I think it's 8 a.m. So I think it's a, it's a very good number. And we have a lot of policemen, let me tell you. And they have different color. I've been here over 20 years, but I'm not very in contact with the police. So I don't understand those ones who have yellow and the ones who are completely blue. But, um, yeah, there is different uh, police, um, uh, policemen here. You know, uh, some of them just not letting us to move into the meeting area. But there is others very violently, you know, stopping anyone who comes with boxes or, you know, bags. And they are checking everything. And I don't understand, but... Yeah, that's the way they are behaving. Mm. And what are you hoping for today or, or expecting for today, this last day well, of the blockade? I think we already uh, managed to uh, pass the message, you know, to all these multinational corporations and uh, that we know what they are doing. You know, that people is watching them. That, that It's not like before that, you know, they were just a small group organizing campaigns and actions now. A lot of people understand the meaning of this mining um, business. Um, so I think it has been successful. I feel bad for those ones who uh, have been arrested um, and all those ones who have been injured, you know, during these uh, three days. But, yeah, it's not just now. We are hoping that when this blockade finishes here, uh, the blockade has the last dinner organized in South Bank at 6 p.m., so we are going to organize the last action trying to stop that dinner. And how can, 
how can listeners um, support, you know, if they're not able to, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, we want people to get down and join you at the blockade. If people can't um, join you, what can listeners do to support? Well, they, what they can do, they need to look into um, web pages, you know, where they, the information is there for them to learn. Uh, I think uh, we all can learn um, that if different campaigns and groups who have been for years, you know, looking after these multinational corporations, what they are doing, the communities they are displacing. For, displacing. for example, here in Australia, you have, in Western Australia, you have in the Northern Territory, you know, these mining companies. And people need to inform themselves, and they need to start writing, sending letters to uh, anyone who um, is involved in allowing these kind of meetings happening here in Australia to protest, you know, uh, saying, look, that's not right. We, uh, as uh, Australians, we have the right to, to know what the government is doing. And if giving 10, 100 jobs to people means to displace thousands, to pollute rivers, to change the course of rivers, you know, it's not worth it. Mm. And and I think also that point you were making before about how the you know the the fight against the multinational corporations at the IMARC conference is also first and foremost um, a struggle led by First Nations voices, and it's a fight against you know white supremacy and capitalism and displacement of First Nations people around the world. Yeah, look. Um, I can mention Sun, for example, I'm involved with LASNET, Latin American Solidarity Network, and we have been campaigning uh, to denounce multinational corporations, not just mining, also forestry, hydroelectric companies, and other companies, you know, who make drinks, soft drinks. Mm. So why? Because in Latin America, these companies can do whatever they want. There is no much regulation. So they can, uh, you know, stop people organizing. And for example, in Colombia... Um, uh, we have a strong multinational who can stop workers for being unionized, you know. So that, that's the power that multinational corporations have in other parts of the world. So we need to inform ourselves, join different campaigns, and spread the word, you know, send the information to everyone, you know, explain that what's happening, that this is affecting everyone. It's not just uh, the people, the ones we are here standing today. It's also affecting you and everyone who is very comfortably sitting in their office at the moment. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Marisol, for joining us this morning in our live cross from the IMAC blockade and letting us no know problem. the importance of getting down there um, and yes, supporting. Yes, no problem. Okay, and we have the policeman here looking at us. Um, I hope that he's not waiting for me to stop talking and take me to the police station, but uh, <laughs> that's oh. what they have been doing, so... Let's see. Yeah, all the best. And yeah, okay. we send our support so from Thursday Breakfast. Okay, thank you. Bye. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. It's 12 past 8, and we were just then talking with Marisol live from the IMAP blockade, which 3CR has been covering for the past few days. Um, if you can get down there to support today, this is day three, the final day of the blockade, and if not... You know, jump online, um, send some funds to support all the folks who have been arrested, who have legal fines, um, and educate yourselves, find out more, and join the struggle against the multinational corporations and mining exploitation and other industries that are destroying First Nations land around the world.
Matthew Fagan Band and Friends presents Earth Show, a rock and classical journey across our living planet. It's a music and visual spectacular celebrating the one planet that we inhabit. Saturday the 9th of November at the Deacon Edge Federation Square. Concert starts at 8pm and an environment symposium, Our Shared Home, is on from 5pm. There's a 40% discount for 3CR subscribers, making your all-inclusive tickets just $33 for adults, $30 concession and $24 for students. Plus booking fee and don't forget to book in with the 3CR subscriber code 3CR20. Go to www.matthew-fagan.com. A 3CR supporter. Three CR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to our Three CR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. تستمعون إلى Three CR Community Radio أرجاء الاشتراك الآن. نينغل لونغلين سموها بانولي Three CR أي كرت كوندير كوندير Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuketsek Radio y Gairanin, Oretangudam Elbumi Hai Kaotin, Himartanakrovetsek Ipertrisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's quarter past eight. And up next, we're going to listen to Buckle Up by Okenyo. Good luck. 
mind, put your hands above ya. Hear no evil, seek the love. Speak with your mind, put your hands above ya. Hear no evil, seek the love. Speak with your mind, put your hands above ya. Hear no evil, seek the love. Speak with your mind, put your hands above ya. Girl, you know I'm always down. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 18 past 8 and we were just listening to Buckle Up by Okenyo. Just before we were talking to Marisol from the IMAC blockade and now we're going to talk about a different form of police violence. We've got Monique Hurley on the line from the Human Rights Law Centre. Good morning, Monique. How are you going? Yeah, good morning. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um... So there's been a new bill that's been tabled in federal parliament about raising the age of criminal responsibility to 14 rather than 10. I was wondering if you could explain why people are calling for this. Sure. So currently across Australia, children as young as 10 can be arrested, they can be charged with an offence, they can be hauled before the court, they can be locked away in prison um, and deprived of their liberty. And so Australia has one of the lowest ages of legal responsibility in the world, And so right now there's the private members bill that you referred to that's been introduced to the federal parliament by Rebecca Sharkey. Um, That's been supported by the Greens and a number of crossbenchers, including Jackie Lambie, Zali Stegel and Andrew Wilkie. And so this is really a conversation starter that proposes a really simple reform that will make a world of difference um, because 10-year-old kids belong in schools and playgrounds, not in courtrooms and prison cells. Cool. So I guess we've been hearing a lot with this discussion about you know, like brain development, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk about the diff- like why people are saying 14 and not 10 and what it kind of means about kids' developments and their ability to understand what they've done wrong. Sure. So it's important that, to note that medical organisations um, and associations like the AMA um, are supporting this call to raise the age to 14 um, because that is backed by the science. Kids of a really young age, so we're talking about 10, 11, 12-year-old children, um, are not at a stage of development to really fully grasp the consequences of their actions. Um, And I think it's really up to us as adults to help kids learn from their mistakes rather than dumping them in the quicksand of the, you know, the legal system. And also, this is Max here, it's also, I guess, a question of, you know, it's not necessarily that kids have even done anything wrong. You know, I feel like this bill, this, it also really raises... The issue of the fact that, you know, certain behaviours are criminalised and certain communities are targeted. Um, can you sort of speak to who who does the, the current age of criminal responsibility, who is most affected by that? So totally. Like, we know that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids are always hit the hardest by punitive approaches. Um, so across Australia each year, it's about 9,000 children under the age of 14 are dealt with by police and around 16 children um, are held in prison Um, and 70% of those are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And again, most of those children come from backgrounds of disadvantage and trauma 
So this really penalises, you know, the most marginalised children the most. And it's often, you know, it can be kids who are, for example, in out-of-home care who have a food fight or who, you know, get into a car with a mate or something like that. It's not actually behaviour that in any other context would be seen as quote-unquote criminal, um, but that these young people in these circumstances and from these backgrounds get disproportionately targeted by um, this criminal legal system in this way. They do. And so the younger that people have um, their first contact with the criminal justice system, um, the more likely they are um, to come back and have further contact with the the legal system um, as they get older. And so raising the age um, to a higher from 10 to 14 um, will help, you know, keep those children um, out of the system and help, you know, encourage the government to put in alternative responses to help, you know, address those behaviours that are, that shouldn't be criminalised but that need a different response. Um, I know that there is different ways in, you know, parts of Europe, maybe Scandinavia, where youth justice is dealt with in a really different way. I was wondering if you could maybe talk to different ways of dealing with some kind of trauma and the fact that all these kids, you know, have trauma backgrounds and then putting them in a prison no matter if they're 10 or 14 what that does to them as well or maybe different ways we could think about um, dealing with this problem Of course so children um, in Australia currently once you are put in prison and you're locked up behind bars um, the children are subjected to a range of really um, terrible practices that have an impact on their um, mental health and well-being so Children that are already more likely to get trapped in the legal system are more likely to come from backgrounds where they've experienced um, trauma, they've maybe witnessed family violence or been a victim survivor of family violence, and then they're going into a system that subjects them to routine strip searching. They can be held in solitary confinement, sometimes for excessive periods of time. Um, They can have very little access to family little access to meaningful education um, and other social supports, and they're also removed from family and community, which can be an important source of support, um, especially for young people. And so we really need to do whatever we can to keep children out of that system at all costs. And I think that, you know, it's really on us as adults to be helping children learn from those, from their mistakes and from, you know, things that children do um, rather than, you know, putting them in prisons. Thanks. Um, so I know that there's a new prison that's being proposed and starting to be built out in the west called Cherry Creek. I was wondering if you could talk about where that's at and what's happening um, and what the problems with, you know, making more prison beds are. Well, we don't need more prisons, um, and especially we don't need prisons for um, young people. Um, the Andrews government made the announcement um, earlier in the year that um, particularly young children won't be going to Cherry Creek, which was, um, you know, a good announcement to hear. But, um, you know, children shouldn't be in prison, and there is there is no need to be spending money, uh, an excessive amount of money on building a new facility um, when that money should really be better off um, spent, you know, working with Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and community service organisations to help develop the responses that children need to help them stop having access, um, stop having contact with the criminal legal system in the first place. Mm-hmm. And 
Monique, I guess even though, you know, we did see that backflip from the Andrews government around um, their plans for the Cherry Creek Kids Prison um, and also the Parkville Kids Prison in terms of, you know, they're now saying that only um, like boys of a certain age will be sent to um, sent to Cherry Creek. There's still yeah. there's still a net expansion, isn't there? You know, they're still going to be building um, more capacity in the prison system to lock up children in so-called Victoria. Yes, that's that's the plan um, at the moment. And you know, those boys that will be going to that facility, it's just really funneling money into a system that we know doesn't work, that we know doesn't help children, um, and that we know doesn't help those boys that will be going there um, when it's built, and that money would just be better spent on, um, you know, investing in community-based responses to help keep those young boys connected to their community and to get the services that they need in terms of if they need um, access to mental health services, um, you know, trying to keep them engaged with education, that's just a much better way to be spending the money and it's also the right thing to do. And how can listeners join the, the, the struggle to both you know, end the expansion of prisons for children and for everyone in Victoria um, and also to join the campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility? So in terms of raising the age of criminal responsibility, listeners can go to the Human Rights Law Centre's website, which is www.hrlc.org.au, and we've got a petition at the moment. And so listeners can join the chorus of calls to raise the age by adding their name um, to that petition, if that's something that people would like to do. Cool. Um, is there anything else you want to leave us with, Monique? I think that this is just a really simple reform, raising the age from 10 to at least 14 years old, um, that would make a world of difference for children. Um, I think we all can imagine a, you know, a 10 or 11 year old student. We're talking about primary school age kids who are in grades four, grades five and grade six and imagining them in a prison and the impact that that would have on them. Um, and I think that, you know, decent politicians would be doing all that they can to, to stop that from happening and raising the age from 10 to 14 is a really important first step to help stop funneling children into the criminal legal system. Cool. Thank you so much for that and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. That was Monique Hurley from the Human Rights Law Centre talking about raising the age of criminal responsibility to 14 from 10. That's all we have time for today. Yeah, so it was the show went so quickly. I know. First thing this morning, you know, we heard an interview I did with Jodie Rosenberg, author of Confessions of the Fox, around trans and decastle and abolitionist politics in historical and speculative fiction. After that, we spoke with Scout, the creative director of Tilled Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, as well as Tommy Hart, one of the filmmakers, because um, that festival is launching tonight at Hez and Hyenas, 7pm, even though it's sold out. Get down there if you want. After that, Carly spoke with Lisa Fuller, author of Ghostbird, um, which was the winner of the David Unipon Prize. Then after that, we had the... We talked to Maricel, who was... Um, a live cross from the IMARC blockade that's happening for the rest of the to- rest of today. And do get down there today. Today's day three of the IMARC blockade. If you can, please show your support by getting down there. Otherwise, jump online um, and also contribute resources if you can. And last up, we heard just then from Monique Hurley from the Human Rights Law Centre about the importance of raising the age of criminal responsibility. 
And that is all we've got time for this morning. Thank you, Grace, for a great show. Thank you. Um, Happy Halloween, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Stay tuned for Lost in Science. We'll be back next Thursday. um, And join Friday Breakfast tomorrow morning. Hope everyone has a great Thursday. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.